o'clock. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. This is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, May 5th, 2016. And we have expanded our format to 45 minutes. Tonight, we have attorney Stephen Wright from Connecticut as our guest. We're glad to see him return. He's a good lawyer and a real thinker. We've had two really good group consults where we had almost two hours of questions and answers in each one for a small group of people limited to 10. People were happy with the format that allowed them not only to ask questions, but to ask follow-up questions to broaden or deepen their inquiries. I liked it. I think I reached uh, more people in a shorter period of time than is normally the case. Now we're piloting a special on half-hour consults because we think for the most part that is all people really need in order to get started. And because we have finished a number of cases, we have a few slots open here in South Florida in which we can represent homeowners directly in Florida or provide litigation support to lawyers who are in or outside of Florida. You can call for a consult where I can help you evaluate your case from the perspective of an expert witness in the securitization of debt. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. And this show is especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. I want to thank you people for contributing. It's a... Uh, an honor to receive your contributions. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 954-495-9867 and pledge whatever you think you can afford. On the West Coast, you can dial 520-405-1688. If this show has value to you, if the blog has value to you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Lending Lies is the new platform that we have developed for the business end of this enterprise, and we have launched it. We are uh, enjoying some of the uh, benefits of uh, automation. And let me remind you again that nothing stops a foreclosure 
accept a court order. No letter, pleading, or anything else will stop the foreclosure from proceeding or stop the forced sale of the property, no matter how wrong it may be. In bankruptcy, that order is automatically issued, generally, as soon as the bankruptcy is filed. There are exceptions to that, depending upon when the last bankruptcy was filed. Stephen Wright went to Trumbull High School, Florida State University, and Western New England College of Law, where he graduated in 1980. So we're not talking about a newcomer in the practice of law. We're talking about a seasoned litigator with experience, and he has studied the issue of foreclosures and mortgages. He is a lecturer in the Commercial Law League of Florida, a former faculty member of the College of the State Bar in Texas, and a current member of the Connecticut Bar, and of course a previous member of the Texas Bar. He has lectured and written on workouts, collection of judgments, debtor-creditor relations, the UCC, and bankruptcy. Stephen, welcome back, friend. Neil, it's always a pleasure to hear your voice and to be on your show, and um, I'm glad to be back. So, before we get into some of the meatier things... Um, any new cases in your jurisdiction that are favorable to the borrower? Yeah, um, we had a case come down, uh, Wells Fargo Bank versus uh, Ruggieri, that's R-U-G-G-I-R-I. And uh, once again, uh, our Court of Appeals has uh, established a very stout standard to establish standing uh, as a borrower and they continue to do that, and that seems to be where a lot of the uh, the hay is made for borrowers in Connecticut. Um, in this case, what did they, uh, what did they, they, couldn't, they couldn't establish when they got the assignment, when the assignment was made, and so on and so forth, and the court uh, returned the case to the trial court for a decision or some further findings of fact. Um, my guess would be is they probably don't know when the assignments were made or that they were made at some convenient time. Otherwise, they probably would have put the information on the uh, the docket. So uh, I used to kind of be a, a, a kind of a warm 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 weather friend to the issue of standing because uh, to uh, win it, you used to have to be able to point out who the real owner of the note was or who should be bringing the action. The courts don't seem to be doing that anymore. They're just looking solely at the plaintiff and adopting the posture that if the plaintiff can't establish standing, then uh, they dismiss the case. You don't need to be able to demonstrate who the real real party in interest is. And uh, I think that's the way the law should be, and I think it also hopefully reflects a trend uh, that is beginning elsewhere where they'll... Um, start taking a closer look at these presumptions that the assignments are valid, uh, that the person who signed on behalf of the assignee or the assignor, I mean, uh, had authority to do so and, and those kind of things. Um, yeah, I think I think we're seeing a change all over uh, in, in just little instances, and that's how it all starts where basically the courts are going back 
to uh, sanity, I would call it, where somebody comes into court, they say they have a claim, and the judge says, okay, prove it. I'm not going to assume anything. And uh, and I think that's where these cases are going. And the uh, first one I want to talk to you about is the Florida case of HSBC versus, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, Busett or Busset, uh, B-U-S-E-T. Uh, judge uh, Butchko, uh, if I'm pronouncing that right, uh, uh, had a very interesting written decision that was unusual for litigation in South Florida. Um, and uh, I'm wondering what your take is on that case. Well, I'll tell you, um, the, the, well, I have got a couple takes on it. The first take is is that I think the court, uh, unlike many courts, uh, didn't give lip service to the idea that foreclosure is an equitable action and that someone who wants equity must do equity. So the court noted that and then went through the analysis of the case and found that the assignment was made up uh, just to, you know, um, meet meet the convenience of Aquin. Uh, right. That the, that the real, real holder of the note or the original uh, maker, the, the original uh, note holder or owner uh, could not have possibly given MERS uh, as its nominee, permission to um, assign it to the securitized trust because it was out of business at the time. And I'm finding that to be the case more and more as I look into these um, these uh, these <clears throat> these uh, mortgage companies or whatever they want to call them. I think they're mortgage brokers, really. Um, I'm also finding uh, that some of them are fictitious and just assume names. And um, you going I ran to into a company called America, America's Brokers Conduit. Yeah, I want to get into that with you. But before yeah. we do, how are you going to persuade judges in your jurisdiction to follow the decision in, uh, in Busett? Well, she took kind of an interesting approach and, and – See, we have a case in Connecticut, the, the Shivers case, which basically says that the borrower really can't complain about the, you know, the inefficiencies or inaccuracies of the, of the trust that it did, wasn't properly endorsed, that it didn't go in right. Well, what what the, what your judge did uh, was say that look, um, these are just not niceties. These determine whether or not the trust actually owns the note. Uh, it has to be properly endorsed. Uh, it has to be endorsed uh, over at a time when the uh, transfer transferor had some existence. Uh, you can't make up the assignment just to uh, suit yourself uh, so that you can bring a foreclosure action. Um, and, uh, you know, there's no reason why the endorsements don't meet the standards of the uh the, the the trust. So, um, you know, ours kind of took a quick look at it and said, oh, well, the trust didn't go, the, the note didn't go into the trust within the time provided by the by the trust agreement. And um, 
said the plaintiff had no standing to do that. In this case, the court took a different look at it, I think, and said, look, we're not looking here at niceties about whether or not the trust is being filed. We're, we're talking about standing, that that the uh, HSBC, as the trustee for uh, the Fremont Home Loan Trust, uh, never... The trust never got the never never became the holder, and therefore yeah, I think missing missing ingredients there. Uh, she dismissed the case for lack of standing, which I think was uh, the, the right decision. I, I think it was the right decision, and I think she and other judges around Florida and around the country are starting to shift their uh, th- their gaze, their vision. Uh, uh, to include the so-called underlying transaction. An assignment of a mortgage is only as good as the transaction that produced the assignment. If there is no such assignment, if there is no such transaction, then the assignment is no better than a uh, a deed. Uh, Let's say I uh, decided to buy your house um and you agreed to uh uh to take uh $100,000 um and you sign the deed and I grab the deed and run without giving you the $100,000 uh to say that that deed is going to be upheld in court is to say that the court is going to put a rubber stamp on my theft. And that's what Butchko, Judge Butchko, I think, was getting at in, in, in this. And I think it also overlaps uh, with what, and you mentioned it before, the, uh, uh, the uh, presumptions. Um where courts up until now have routinely looked at an assignment and said, well, there must have been a transaction, so I don't know what this borrower is talking about. He's just trying to get out of a legitimate debt. And now they're saying, well, wait a minute. If there was no transaction, then why was there an assignment? If there was no transaction, why would there be an endorsement? Why would you, why would you get rid of uh, or or transfer a note and mortgage which has values in six figures at least many times seven or eight figures um, why would you transfer that without being paid for it and the obvious answer is because they didn't own it yeah because you didn't and, pay for it in the first place right <laughs> yeah. so there are a, a number of judges and this one I think is true uh, is is uh, is one of them uh, who are saying yeah actually that does make sense and like the Evanova court said just because you signed a note or a mortgage or whatever and you took money doesn't mean you owe it to anyone you have to owe it to someone and That's right and. And the even over court in California, California Supreme Court, was concerned about what kind of precedent they would be opening up, um, um, and they even hinted at it in the opinion of, 
you know, creating a new industry of stealing receivables. Because according to the banks, all they uh, had to do was uh, allege the fact that the uh, the homeowner owed money. And it must be to them because who else is in court? It was kind of a circular argument. I think that circle's being broken now, and I'm pleased to see it. I'm also pleased to see that she held the business record custodian who testified at trial, held her feet to the fire, and found that she didn't have sufficient information or sufficient qualifications to uh, sponsor the uh, business records of the prior uh, entity. And uh, right. I think that's a really important thing. If you can get over the summary judgment and get to the trial, uh, these people that come and testify on behalf of the, of the plaintiffs, lenders, or whatever you want to call them, uh, are, are not qualified to testify. And right. It happened to be the same person that signed the, the affidavit for summary judgment where they said that they are familiar with all the books and records and every other damn thing associated with this note. I mean, that's just fertile ground for cross-examination. And uh, uh, the lawyer in this case did a very good job at that and convinced the judge that this witness was not qualified to sponsor the business records of the other company, which is was up until... Well, this case, particularly in Connecticut, is almost an automatic. Right. Right. I I completely agree with that I mean, analysis. You know, I always make the argument that, you know, your business record predicate requires that the court find that the records are made in the ordinary course of business, not that the witness testifies that they're made in the ordinary course of business. That's a conclusion. And right. I haven't had much luck with that yet in Connecticut, but I'm going to start pushing it a little bit now that I have this case that that uh, suggests that the court should reach that conclusion based on the factual testimony of the business record sponsor as opposed to just letting the, the, the record keeper say, oh, these are made in the ordinary course of business and they're made at or near the time of the uh, of the event described therein. Because we all know they don't know that. Exactly. And and the the point that I've been making for the better part of ten years is uh that that lawyers in the courtroom should not be shy. They should be uh prepared on cross examination and aggressive and uh willing to uh, drill the witness uh, all day if necessary, um, and and the more drilling you do on cross examination, the more it comes out that, like you say, the, the the man or woman that's on that stand was hired to deliver a script, and they know nothing, and they're not supposed to know anything because they don't want the banks don't want any slip ups on the stand. So they send somebody in who is literally a blank slate except for the script that they're supposed to testify to. And um, uh, that's becoming increasingly obvious on cross-examination. I've heard from several lawyers now who have stepped up their cross-examination of these witnesses 
and you know found gold. They they were able to prevail in cases that looked like sure losers uh, because the uh, uh, the the so-called corporate representative didn't have the faintest idea. One of the things that I do when I cross-examine uh, those witnesses, and I know other lawyers are doing this now too, is when I get the witness to commit that he's seen all the books and records that are necessary for this action and, and in relation to this loan, and I ask him, okay, well, uh, you are the corporate representative of the uh, servicer. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Okay. So I said, um, who does the servicer pay when it gets a payment from the borrower? <laughs> and he has no idea because he has not seen all of the books and records. And so he has no way of being able to say who the creditor is or whether the, the creditor is actually showing a, uh, a default or whether the um, uh, he also doesn't have any way of knowing whether or not the servicer ever made payments to the creditor or whoever he would identify as the creditor. And as you were, you and I were discussing before the show went live, the actual identity of the creditor is going to be a real problem for the banks because um, um, I've, I've described it in brief, but uh, the, in my opinion, there is no party that actually can be identified under legal definitions as a creditor. There is there is a party that has a claim oh, against yeah. the homeowner for unjust enrichment, etc. But they have no claim on the note and mortgage because they weren't party to it. And those would be the investors. But the investors are can, cannot be identified because their money didn't go into the trust. It just got commingled with all other investors and all other trusts. So this is going to be a very difficult problem for the uh, for the banks as we move forward, and of course they're going to do everything they can to get as many uh, uncontested, even though they're illegal, foreclosures uh, done before they have to uh, fight these cases out. So the other interesting part of the decision i thought was that that the court specifically found that the note was not a negotiable instrument right and that argument has kind of been floating around with some kind of snickering going on kind of behind everybody's back uh but um as the securitization process was explained by what the court described as a very qualified and credible expert witness um it makes sense that the a securitized note, when it's sold in a pool of thousands of others, uh, no longer is payable to the order of any particular person, and therefore it's not it's not a promissory note. Right. There's only a right exactly. to payment, and that 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 if if that is, if this is appealed and that's upheld, uh, that's going to be very strong law. It'll be interesting to see if HSBC does make the appeal, because right now 
they've got a decision in a trial court they don't like, um, which is not authoritative over other courts. But if they lose the appeal, the decision will affect all cases in the third district uh, court of appeal in Florida and be very persuasive elsewhere in Florida and even the country. I think the reasoning in the decision uh, as written by Judge uh, Butchko uh, uh, is going to be very persuasive in courts across the country. So, uh, yeah, I agree with the, with your take on that. Um let me ask and you another question. And I think the HSBC ought to consider what it's, you know, it didn't comply with the court's discovery order. So, um, you know, it might, it, it may find itself in, in hot in hot water on the Court of Appeals just on an unclean hands doctrine for just thumbing their noses at a court's order for sanctions. Yeah, I think that, uh, um, I think there's more of an appetite in the appellate courts to hold the bank's feet to the fire, uh, and uh, I've run into a, f- uh, a few judges that are actually angry that they got kind of the wool pull- pulled over their eyes on these foreclosures, um, and it took them a long time to uh, uh, to realize what was going on. But part of the reason for that is that lawyers and, of course, pro se litigants were unable to explain the situation and the position well enough. And the other part is that the burden was put completely on the homeowner to defend against allegations that really hadn't been made yet. And instead of making the bank prove its case, the homeowner was running into these legal presumptions, even with obvious fabrications, bad notaries, backdating, and all kinds of other stuff, these presumptions were still being applied, which Florida law says they shouldn't be. Um, And the burden was shifting to the homeowner to prove that the underlying transaction did not occur. But when the homeowner went and asked those questions in discovery and tried to compel answers, the court prevented the homeowner from doing so also on the basis of the presumption that the documents were valid, the transaction occurred, there's no reason for discovery. So it was one of those circular reasoning things again, which now is starting to be questioned, and I'm I'm happy about that. Uh, let me ask you another question. Have you ever heard of a company called America's Bro- uh, uh, American Brokers Conduit? Well, I've heard I've I've seen promissory notes that say that it's a New York corporation. Most yeah. of the notes are dated between 2005 and 2007. So, uh when I looked into it a little bit, I found out that American Brokers Conduit was not a New York corporation back in that time. In fact, it wasn't formed until 2012, and I don't know why it was. <clears throat> Excuse me, because it seems a little bit late. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> I have an action right now where America's Brokers Conduit was the original holder of the note, 
MERS was, um, and it wasn't even a member of MERS. I mean, I don't know how it could have been. It was an assumed name for another company that eventually went bankrupt. But um, uh, MERS endorsed it over as the nominee for a fictitious entity, which to me seems like pure hokum pokum. I mean, that's just... I I have run in. I, I have run into this before. An American broker's conduit was the uh, originator in another case where the judge decided that the uh, uh, the entity never existed and um, uh, even uh, ordered uh, uh, Bank of America to disgorge all money it ever got on the, on the loan because the, the uh, original loan documents were invalid. Uh, whether they were void or not was another story. But I had another case where um, uh, we had a, a witness from Wells Fargo who was asserting that it was the owner of the loan, and um, uh, this was a guy that... Uh, uh, also said he knew everything and, you know, all the records were kept and, you know, at the time the transaction was made and all that stuff. So I asked him, you know, uh, based upon his own documents there, I said, what does this mean over here? And he says, well, that's the investor. Well, I said, well, um, so you're saying Fannie Mae was the investor? He said, yeah. And I said, well, when did that start? He says, they were the investor from the beginning. <laughs> so I said, so basically you're saying the American Brokers Conduit did not loan the money here, that it was Fannie Mae. And he said, yeah. So uh, that case got settled, needless to say. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, American Brokers Conduit is just a fictitious name. And I tracked it down uh, in uh, in one of my cases uh, to a an address in Melville, New York. That's right. Which which uh, uh, the address was a residence. Oh, I didn't know that because there was a Merrick's Brokers Conduit was treated as a subsidiary in a bankruptcy. Uh, for uh, I forget what America Holding or something like that, <clears throat> which America I wholesale uh, uh, lender. Oh, America wholesale. Now that's a, that's that's the countrywide fictitious name. Yeah, yeah. And um, I didn't know that American Brokers Conduit uh, was was treated as a subsidiary of anything. Yeah, it was treated as a subsidiary of um, America Home Lending something. It, it was a Delaware bankruptcy, quite a big bankruptcy, which also, if you look into that, you'll see that the liquidating trust sold all the assets. So how they end up in the hands of Bank of America or somebody like that is just pure, uh, 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 pure fiction. It, it is that. pure fiction. And and up until now, Bank of America and Wells Fargo and City and Chase, et cetera, they've been getting away with it. And U.S. Bank appears as the trustee about every trust now. And uh, uh, 
all they're getting paid is a monthly fee for saying they're the trustee, but they don't have any trust assets in their trust department for any of these so-called trusts because the trusts are non-operating and empty. Yeah. So, so let me so ask I you think this. That, I, that's, I think that uh, <clears throat> the judge's decision in the uh, the Bussett case uh, is written well enough and thorough enough for someone who has a uh, case like we do in Connecticut to ask the trial court and, and obviously the appellate court, well, you'll probably end up there to take a second look at it and 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 don't look at it in terms of the niceties of the trust. Uh, look at it in terms of um, whether or not the trust can actually bring the action because they never got the note. Correct. I think that's what, what the Shivers case in Connecticut did. It just assumed that the note was in the trust, and it said, well, we're not going to worry about it, the fact that it got in two weeks late or that the endorsement wasn't exactly what it should have been, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> By the way, before I forget, uh, um, Steve Steve Wright's information is both on the Blog Talk radio site, uh, the Neil Garfield Show, and on the blog. His telephone number is 203-261-3050. Um, he's proved valuable resource just for discussion purposes and has been doing a good job for people in Connecticut. Um, I would recommend him not only to represent uh, homeowners, but to provide litigation support to other attorneys in other states uh, because he has already thought through the issues, as you've heard. So I just wanted to make sure I I said that uh, before we ran out of time on the show. Uh, Steve, uh, let's go back to rescission. Um, we've had, we have hundreds of cases being filed where the rescission was sent 10 years after the note was signed or the mortgage was signed. Um, I have made it, you know, uh, perhaps too strong a point because people have abandoned other foreclosure defense strategies, which I didn't mean for them to do. But um, uh, I've, uh, my reading of Jessanowski and the statute and Reg Z, they all say the same thing, which is that every rescission is effective as a matter of law, whether it is disputed or not. And that means procedurally that the only party that can uh, that, uh, that needs to go to court is the creditor who actually would be injured as a result of losing the note and mortgage and the creditor would have to allege that they are the creditor and that they are the owner of the note and, or they were the owner of the note and mortgage and then come in with the reasons, whether it's the three years have expired or uh, it's a uh, uh, purchase money mortgage or any of the other issues. Um, And they can only do that within the 20-day window of 
uh, starting from when the uh, rescission was received. I, I'm certain, actually, you know, as certain as I can be in the practice of law, um, that ultimately that is going to be the decision, and yet I find myself uh, again being the target of naysayers uh, when I said uh, eight years ago that in rescission you don't have to bring a lawsuit and you don't have to tender anything. And, you know, about a thousand courts said I was wrong um, until Jessenowski in the Supreme Court said, yeah, that is the way it is. The borrower doesn't have to bring a lawsuit and then he doesn't have to tender anything and he doesn't have to give the house away or anything like that. So how does consummation play into this equation from the way you're looking? Well, um, first of all, I think, you know, there's not a real clear decision on what consummation is. But I think that if you can establish that the consummation hasn't taken place, then the statute doesn't begin to run, in my view. And I think, that the, and I think the, uh, the statute says that specifically in the language of the statute. Now, that, that's, that's a little tricky, what consummation is. As I understand consummation is somebody funds the money and then somebody takes the money. The lender funds it, the borrower takes it. In our cases, though, what we're finding is, or we're seeing is that who purports to be the actual lender is not really the lender. It's really investors' money or some other company's money, and it's um, so. Right. Is there is there consummation? I don't know. That's going to be an open issue. There's a <clears throat> case getting ready to go to trial in Portland, Oregon. Uh, that I heard a little bit about it, where the judge did not dismiss the case uh, for rescission, uh, that where the notice was given 10 years after the note was signed on the theory that it wasn't consummated for exactly the reasons I just stated. So that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, and I think the, the lack of consummation, which actually is the root of all of this, because they're all table-funded loans, and so there was no consummation of a loan contract between the borrower and the named payee on the note and the named mortgagee on the mortgage. So, But the interesting thing about that is, at least the way I'm reading it, um, is that if there was no consummation, then there was no loan contract. If there's no loan contract, then there's nothing to rescind. But that still gives you pretty much the same result as a rescission, which is that the note and mortgage are void if there was no consummation of the loan contract. So you get it either way when you put the consummation issue into play. And, yes, I agree that the, the, the word consummation might be somewhat fungible, but I think that under basic contract law, uh, you have to have consideration flowing both ways. And if the payee on that note didn't make a loan to you and the party who did make the loan to you um, or uh, the party whose money was used to, uh, to loan to you uh, is not contractually connected to the originator, 
then there is no consummation at all. Now, yeah. if if you have a typical, if you have a typical table funded loan pre securitization era, then there would be consummation with a violation, which is that it's table funded. Uh, but you would have a real lender who had a contractual relationship with the originator because the originator and the, the hidden lender sign what's called an assignment and assumption agreement. And um, uh, the uh, that that's their contract that ties both of them in. But what's really happening is that you get entities like ABN AMRO and stuff like that who are behind the curtain, but they're just conduits. They're not yeah, really right. lenders. <clears throat> that's right. And that's, I think WAMU was a, a Washington Mutual became a conduit at some point. Yeah, and countrywide as well. That's um, right. All, all of these entities were, were conduits for conduits for conduits because what really happened at the very beginning, is that the investment bank took money from the investor as the purchase for a mortgage bond and that was issued by a trust that was never in business. Right. And never went into business. A trust that never had a bank account and still doesn't. A trust that in many cases doesn't doesn't exist anymore because... They use the trick of what they call resecuritizing the uh, the trust. So the old trust disappears, a new one shows up, and um, uh, I'm told that some of them actually have some assets, and some of the new ones have some assets in them. Oh. So I'm kind of interested as this issue of consummation comes to a head. Uh, where we're going to end up. I think that uh, uh, either way, uh, the original theft from the investors should not be rewarded with a foreclosure against the borrower. And that's that's kind of where I stand. I don't know how you feel about that. No, I think you're right. I, I, I think, or at least that you should have your remedies uh, held off and be able to be asserted down the road and not be confined to a three-year statute of limitation when it's determined that the consummation actually didn't take place and somebody else really lent the money. And that's the case in a lot of these. And, um, you know, if anything, the Bussett case tells you, don't take anything for granted. I mean, you know, do every, you know, search everything. You know, look up these loans and, and get them, uh, <clears throat> get these trusts uh, understood, and get the 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 P and A agreement. And uh, you know, don't don't take anything for granted. Like like what I found out with America's Brokers Conduit. I mean, you you read the note and it says America's Brokers Conduit, a New York corporation. Well, you know, it's easy to take that for granted because it's hard to believe that somebody would say that in a lending environment, and it not be true. But it's not true. And then Countrywide well, had their own version of a, a thing, and I'm sure there's there's a few others hanging around that we'll find out about. Um, also, look at the original lender and find out if they're still in business and what happened to it. If the original lender went out of business, 
a time after MERS transferred the mortgage to the to who was ever bringing the action. I mean, that's just that's just that's garbage. <clears throat> they don't have any authority have to, to do that. Leave it at that, Steve. Thank you very much for coming on the show, and I look forward to your return and to speaking with you offline, perhaps tomorrow. Yeah, good. And for the rest, All right, Neil. It's always a pleasure and um, good talking to you. Take care. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.